Welcome to another episode of The Corporate Activist. I'm your host, Siri Kulsa. On today's episode, I speak with Edmund Lebrun, an Oxford University graduate and the co-founder of Ishkar, a mission-driven trade and travel company, which he began with his wife in 2016. On their website, they describe their work this way. We do what humans have done forever, trading objects, telling stories, and traveling beyond our own frontiers. Real and imagined barriers have isolated countries like Afghanistan, Yemen, Mali, and Iraq from international trade and tourism. The result is that pathways to some of the world's most extraordinary places, people, and cultures have narrowed, or in some cases disappeared altogether. Ishgar restores these pathways once again through a unique blend of travel, craftsmanship, and storytelling. Edmund also currently holds a role leading business development for a global health tech company operating in Africa and South Asia. Welcome, Edmund. Thank you for having me. Um, So, Edmund, we know that you're doing some pretty extraordinary things right now, and we'll get into that. But I'd love to just start with a little bit about your background, where you came from, um, what you studied, and and what originally got you into um, traveling to the the far reaches of the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I guess it kind of all began... Uh, when I was 18, um, during I had quite an unusual gap year. I went to live in Xinjiang in Western China um, for 12 months. And during that time, the, there were riots in Xinjiang and the Chinese government shut down all internet um, and international phone calls to the region, um, pretty much for the whole period um, in which I was there. And Xinjiang is a is a Muslim region, um, very similar in geography to Afghanistan, and quite similar culturally. And that was that whole year was was an extremely formative time, as you can imagine, being kind of cut off from from the world. And so when I was at university, I was looking for opportunities to to go and work in a similar region. And Afghanistan always had a huge appeal, as it's the sort of place that. It's very difficult to go to as a tourist, um, but I found kind of magnetic and, and, and fascinating. So I was always looking for opportunities to go out there. And um, when I was at university, I came across Turquoise Mountain, an NGO which was um, which yes. you know well, <laughs> and was restoring restoring the old city of Kabul. And um, I went out there initially as a volunteer, and that was kind of my entry into to that world. And what, but what did you study at university? Was it related to this? I did, um, I did history and vaguely did some Central Asian, South Asian history, mm. but um, I had no qualifications to, <laughs> to bring to my role. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that seems to actually just be, the, the ability to get yourself to a place seems to be one of the main qualifications for things like this. <laughs> And so you you went to Afghanistan for what ended up being an extended period of time um, and eventually started your own company called Ishkar. Um, and so I'd love to hear about sort of the concept and the, the idea behind the creation of this business. Yeah, so um, my I met my wife in Afghanistan. We'd been living there for... Uh, about three and a half years when we decided that we wanted to to set up Ishkar. And what really provoked it was this feeling living in Afghanistan that the world saw Afghanistan and countries like it through a very narrow lens. 
and we felt strongly particularly when you know returning um from afghanistan on leave that people just had had these really basic misconceptions of what life was like in afghanistan for for the majority of people and we felt that we it was important particularly with the growing numbers of refugees arriving in in europe that people had a more nuanced understanding of countries that were impacted by conflict and so we decided to to create a company on an unusual premise which was not particularly about a particular product or even about a particular service but based around a pretty broad mission of using different ways to inform people and change their perception of the, of the way the world viewed countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Mali, all countries we're familiar with from headlines but actually tend to not have a, a very nuanced understanding of. And those were countries that are in conflict most of them right have some degree of conflict where you know they appear on a on a warning do not kind of travel list generally is that right yeah absolutely so so we tend to work in, in countries impacted by conflict or or political instability the th- conflict creates these kind of misperceptions in in a number of ways um one of them is just like the the news the the headlines you get around these countries coalesce around conflict and so everything else kind of falls by the wayside but the other big impact of conflict is that it stops tourism and without tourism and travel people tend to 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 lose a connection with with all the other things that you might learn about a country and the third thing is um conflict creates refugees and refugees arriving in new countries often they face um uh, prejudice they face um people are, are worried about um refugees arriving in their countries and that also further clouds the understanding of um the cultures um from which they come right and so when you first started how how did you think it was going to work um and were you you were focused originally on products from Afghanistan but how quickly did you start incorporating other places. Yeah, so we we started um with one product type which is we want to sell high-end craft. And and the thesis there was that you know if you have a beautiful object um that you keep in your home you're kind of reminded on a daily basis of, about a different sides to these countries. Um and so the very first product really came out of a meeting with with a glassblower called Khulam Sahi who lives in western afghanistan um and he, he belongs to a line of glassblowers that have been making similar glass for the last 2000 years and when we met him he was one of two remaining glassblowers the industry had really been decimated and so we with all our savings from from Afghanistan we p- plowed it straight into fragile glasses that we decided to ship <laughs> halfway across the world so we actually we started with um a shipment of 5000 glasses about 20% of which arrived broken um <laughs> and that was that was really the beginning and we we really concentrated on Afghanistan for the first um 2 years of the of the business before slowly branching out into other countries like Yemen, um Iraq, DRC, Syria. Um 
each of which, as you can imagine, comes with its own logistical complications. And so we, we couldn't expand too quickly into, into other markets. Yeah, I, I sort of imagine um, that working out these logistics, it's probably one of the reasons that everyone isn't importing glass from Afghanistan is that it is very complicated and and your success rate is not always as you'd want it to be. Um, and I know you had, um, was it the first shipment that you, that took a bit longer than you expected or subsequent shipments? It was the second shipment actually that was delayed by nine months. So you can, you can imagine it's, we're, we're terrible business people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we choose, we don't choose the, the easy, um, the easy path, but actually now having worked with the same glassblower for seven years, um, our logistics, despite, um, you know, the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban, despite the fact that main, our main logistics routes, um, have doubled in price and narrowed, we're, we're actually, now we've got the smoothest logistics operation that we've ever had. It's just taken a, a long time to get there. That's amazing. I, and I imagine, um, did you expect you would need this amount of patience and, and sort of logistical know-how to, to make this work? Yeah, I mean, we had worked in um, in our in our previous roles. We had worked very closely with with artisans with with Turquoise Mountain, and so I think we had we had a strong understanding that this that although you kind of see the pretty photos on the website, that ninety five percent of the business is working out um, logistics. It's working out how to get things to our customers um, without uh, you know in the most efficient way. Um, it's working out quality control. It's all the kind of unglamorous parts of the business which absorb most of our time. So we, I think we went into that eyes wide open. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in what I found in, in some of the work that I've done in Afghanistan and other places, um, just helping the artisans to be able to scale their business was also a big part of it because. Um, if you were placing an order for, you know, thousands and thousands of, of pieces of glass, I imagine that was um, more than they were used to dealing with and probably caused them, um, you know, they, they probably had to kind of grow and develop in ways that they weren't used to as well. Completely. And, and you know, we're, we're first and foremost an e-commerce business, although we're, we're opening our first kind of flagship store over the next couple of months. But we, we are an e-commerce business. And for many of our artisans, we're the first partner that they've worked with, which is an e-commerce business. And what an e-commerce business means is that you have one photo to represent a product on the website and you have to match that photo again and again and again. And that is completely not the way that artisans traditionally make their their goods. They make goods often from memory. Um, they produce huge amounts of stock that they then that then sits in stores, and it's all wobbly, wonky, different, unique. <laughs> and um, I think a big part of our role is how to retain that wobbly wonkiness that we love, whilst also getting them to produce a product which is consistent and which um, wh where the quality is. Um, is something that the the customer is going to expect. Yeah, because you're um, you're trying to find customers um, who 
appreciate the the craftsmanship of something, but also are willing to pay top dollar for it and, you know, and, and expect it to, um, to hold together and, and, you know, be of, of good quality as well. So um, I remember all of these things from, yeah. <laughs> from the work that I've done. Yeah. So, so I'm sort of curious because um, in the establishment of Ishkar, you were doing this not just for business goals. You and your and your wife were not just about um, trying to make money from this venture. Um, you had a, a very um, important sort of social um, drive behind this or even a cultural drive behind it. And I'm just curious at the beginning, how did you envision that those things could work together? And, and perhaps, you know, how did that change over time? Yeah, so... Um, we started with the, the, like I say, this lofty goal of, of changing the way that, that people perceive countries. We started with with a very um, clear business case, which was selling high-end craft, but we very quickly realized that um, actually to do this properly, we need to take people to the countries in which things are made. So mm. in 2019, we branched out into travel um, and travel is now sort of equal halves of the business with our craft, um, our craft side. And so we're taking um, groups of tourists um, to many of the countries in which in which we work to show them firsthand um, what what amazing things these places have have to offer. That wasn't mm. in the initial blueprint for the company. We we had quite a vague blueprint. Um, so that's enabled us to evolve in many kind of unique ways. So another arm of the business that we developed, um, quite soon after starting the company was, was monthly events, which often film screenings or supper clubs. Um, the aim being, being each event is a surprising, um, offers something surprising to people and informs people, um, about the countries where we work. Um, in a way that they weren't familiar with. And so that's also become quite quite a significant part of the business. And we've got loads of other, again, very poor business ideas, <laughs> things we would, we would love to explore in the future. Um, um, we would love to do um, a music festival um, of some sort. We, um, we've opened up a kind of bookshop um, um, carrying books again which tell these surprising stories and i think that's our that's what we really love about the company is because we've got such a broad mission we can see it evolving in in loads of really fun interesting ways over the next few years and one of these films that you screened i think was a documentary you made is that right (laughs) i don't think you can call it a documentary but uh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) what was that about a friend a friend and i um attempted to raft down the Oxus River in Afghanistan, um, having never rafted before. Um, so we spent, oh, no. <laughs> we spent a month um, in, in northeastern Afghanistan trying to, trying to raft down this river, which, um, as a spoiler alert, kind of ended in, <laughs> ended in disaster. <laughs> and then actually we, oh, no. we, we went back and tried the same thing again in um, northern Pakistan um, mm. on the, the Hunza River. And um, surprise, surprise, that was an even bigger disaster. So if you... 
Okay. But obviously this this doesn't speak to your ability as to run a travel company at all. <laughs> no, we are safety safety first. <laughs> you know, obviously we've talked a little bit on this um, podcast before about events in Afghanistan, just because that's a bit of, of um, my experience. And um, you were actively working in Afghanistan and, and, you know, I think you had, you know, you were um, probably awaiting some deliveries and things when the Taliban took over again, which was, I think something that all of us thought um, was unimaginable, but I, I'm curious how, world events like this and perhaps things that are happening in some of the other countries you're working in, how you adapt to that and how your, you know, your artisan partners are adapting because I, I can imagine um, it changes, it can change so much about being able to get just supplies that they need. And, and as you mentioned, shipping and things like that. And so I'm curious, particularly about Afghanistan, but perhaps other places as well. Yeah, so so we we were heavily af- affected. Um, we actually had um, over thirty thousand dollars of stock um, sat on Kabul uh, airport runway the 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 moment the, the Taliban took Kabul, and we um, we actually thought that that whole shipment was lost for good, but it was found four months after um, uh, <laughs> after the, the the Taliban took control. Um, of course, our ASEAN partners are way more affected than, than than us. And we paused after Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. We actually paused working in Afghanistan for nine months just as we waited to see what was the situation for them. You know, would by working with a foreign company, would, would that endanger them in any way? Um, and having kind of assessed the situation, having worked out if by supporting our ASEANs, we were somehow supporting the Taliban also in terms of taxes and 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 all of that um we found out that you know the resounding answer was our ASEAN partners need support they need us to carry on working with them more than anything else and that any any um uh, money that was going to the Taliban was was actually very little and definitely worth the trade-off of of carrying on to support our partners and the, these events impact our towns in, in, in myriad ways. I mean, firstly, you know, the most obvious thing is that for, for women in Afghanistan, work and, 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 and working independently has become extremely challenging. Um, although craftsmanship is really the only um professional field left open to women unless you're a unless you're a gynecologist um, pretty much um being an artisan is one of the only jobs that women are allowed to do under this under this new regime so it's become an incredibly important outlet but that said you know it's difficult for them to travel around the city alone they often need to work at home rather than in workshops um and beyond that the whole infrastructure of working with a country of exporting things has become extremely difficult you can't transfer money to afghan banks anymore the, the whole banking system is is essentially frozen um and so often you have to rely on you know what's known as the hawala network which is a, um, a system of money transfer which is um which is which is 
ancient <laughs> um but the, the 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 principle is you pay someone who calls you pay someone in london who calls their often their cousin in afghanistan and tells them that they've received payment and um no money ever crosses borders so we've had to kind of really adapt um particularly on, on payments and then and then like you say like shipping and logistics has become extremely expensive um uh, and difficult to organize so tell us a little bit more about the travel aspect of this so was the idea originally that well that let's you know now that you you've seen the glasses and you like the glasses let's go meet the people who make them or what was the idea behind getting people on a plane <laughs> well i mean there's as tourists ourselves um i personally feel like tourism has has become quite bland in many places the world is so flat you know you can go to nepal and go to remote what you think is a remote area and you see the same things that you see in many other places and that's often because local populations try to second guess what tourists want um and that's created quite a bland experience in my view um in in many countries the advantage of conflict in a way and that it's killed tourism in those countries is that often they don't these countries don't have tourism industries and as a result there's no second guessing what tourists want you go and it's the you get the full experience of what a country is like without people trying to cater to you and so it started with with partly that premise actually afghanistan yemen drc i strongly believe offer some of the most interesting and invigorating tourism out there that that was that was a very strong feeling and the second feeling was if we take people to afghanistan they will leave afghanistan with a completely different understanding of what they thought afghanistan was like before they arrived and the reason that i was so confident about that is that i like everyone i know has lived in afghanistan went through that same experiential journey you know they went thinking that it would be like something and they left with it un- deeply under their skin although that sounds kind of horrible <laughs> but most people i know you know they they have a strong emotional connection to the country and i think part of that emotional connection is born out of surprise it's born out of a kind of a journey that you go on um where you 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 start from one place and you end in another and so um where are some of the the trips that you've done so far and and where are you kind of thinking about going so we're we're running a lot of trips at the moment in uh, Socotra in Yemen Socotra's a smaller island um off the coast of Yemen which is quite similar to the Galapagos in the sense that it's got second to the Galapagos the highest number of endemic plant and animal species anywhere on the planet it's got this incredibly rich flora and fauna which you can't find anywhere else um and again for it despite the fact it's so extraordinary very few people go there um because of 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 how it's perceived due to the war on the mainland um but it's completely safe um we're doing really exciting trips in um 
in June, actually, in, in Eastern DRC, in the volcanic region of Eastern DRC. And we traveled there with uh, an amazing photojournalist called Michael Christopher Brown, who is leading photography workshops um, during, during that trip. We're going to the border of Afghanistan in Tajikistan later this year with another photojournalist, Mathieu Paley, who does a lot of work for National Geographic and, and speaks Wahi, which is the, the language they speak up there. And we're doing trips in northern Pakistan in the, the Hunza Valley region, which in my view is one of the most beautiful places in the world, but again gets incredibly few foreign tourists. Um, again, partly as a result of people thinking that Pakistan and particularly the, the bit of Pakistan which borders Afghanistan is incredibly dangerous, which is which is unfortunately really is really not the case. It's very, very easy for, for travel. I suppose it's but it's the kind of place where you do you know, obviously you're relying on your knowledge of the region, you're relying on trusted partners, you know, which is something that I would imagine, you know, most tour companies um, probably <laughs> are lacking. And so they they don't take those kind of risks. Yeah, exactly. It's all about um, up-to-date, extremely localized knowledge, often often in, in a country which is impacted by conflict. And DRC is a great example of this because the security landscape is changing all the time there. Um, you know, you can be safe, completely safe. In, in, in one place, but 10 kilometers down the road, it's a, it's a no-go area and, and we'd never take people there. And so, although that seems maybe a bit too close for comfort, often it really is just about the, the, the local knowledge. You, you, can, you can travel completely safely um, if you're well advised um, and you know where to go. And so I'm kind of curious how your customers are responding and, and reacting and engaging with your mission um, because initially you're bringing over really beautiful products that um, perhaps people haven't seen before and, and they find it um, a bit unique. But, you know, if you want to have a sustainable business, it has to be um, a bit more than just, just kind of a, an interesting story. So I'm curious, you know, how do how have you gotten customers interested and and what kind of feedback have you gotten so far yeah i mean we have extremely um loyal um customer base and i think that that loyalty comes from you know storytelling like you you, you say that business can't just be storytelling but actually i think particularly for small brands Storytelling has never been more important, particularly about the way in which we we sell to people. We sell through Instagram, we sell through websites. Um, you know, traditional advertising um, doesn't work anymore. What works really well is if you tell a rich and complex story from multiple angles, and people buy into that 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 whole that whole story. So, I think by combining we we have customers that enter the company through different touch points, whether it's an event, or whether it's um, it's uh, on a trip, or whether it's buying a product for the first time. And by telling that story from all those different angles, what we're finding is we get people who are very dedicated to what we're doing. And so, just to give 
some example are on our website we have an average customer return rate so a customer returning within a 12 month period and um, 40% of our customers are are, are returning customers um, from the last 12 months so we do get people a lot of people buying very regularly um, who, who are very loyal to the to, to the cause and are they asking you about the the mission are they asking about the artisans do they do they want to know um, what's behind where the products come from or are they just really interested in these kind of exotic things that maybe they haven't seen in their local shops I think it's definitely a few different types of, of customer profile um, some people just see a waistcoat that they like and want and want to buy it um and and we love that <laughs> and some people you know want to buy a single glass um and are obsessed with the story we have a we have a really big range um uh, of different customers but i would say i would say the majority are drawn in by by a combination of the product and the story but those people are more vocal so maybe that's that skewed our <laughs> understanding of that but it, it's nice that you're also having these opportunities by having events to to interact directly with some of your customers and and uh, be able to have even you know a, a dialogue with them. Yeah, completely. We we and and we often reach out to customers to ask them an advice on certain you know strategic decisions we're making. You know, should we should we be developing this product or not? Should we um, be opening a shop here or not so we, we often have have quite an open exchange with our customers which we find extremely extremely useful and people dedicate a, a good amount of time to replying to us really thoughtfully um, so that that has been massive massive for us yeah and you mentioned that you're opening your first um, real live shop soon <laughs> yeah it's very exciting so we're in the middle of May we're opening a shop on uh, Columbia Road um, in East London, which is um, for people who don't know uh, Columbia Road, it's an amazing street which has a, a flower market every Sunday, um, and uh, it's really kind of dream dream location for us. That's great, and you'll have the products that you're selling on the website now, and and some other things. And what what can we expect to see in the shop? Yeah, so there'll be there'll be a number of our products. Um, it will also be somewhere that people can come and have consultations about about doing trips, and then we're going to do a series of supper clubs. So every couple of weeks, close the the shop and have dinners for fourteen, sixteen people around a different um, food uh, cuisine. So Syrian food or Yemeni or uh, Congolese. Um, we'll do we'll do a supper club and use the, these kind of intimate events as an excuse to talk about um, uh, about the cultures of those countries. That's great. So, Edmund, I I just want to ask um, a sort of a final question: Is you know you said that you and your wife Floor started this um, with you know lots of different ideas, some of them around business, but some of them just about you know, preserving culture and, and creating bridges, um, to between people. I'm curious what advice you have, uh, for, for, let's say social entrepreneurs or people who want to do something with a business side to it, but also something that's going to have 
a positive impact in the world, which is, you know, what we're hoping to see more of. But um, you certainly chose, let's say, a challenging <laughs> way to do this. And, um, you know, the fact that you've, um, you know, you've been able to keep the business going, I think, um, is, is quite tremendous. But I, I'm just curious, for anyone starting out, what advice you might have for them? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think when you hear us talk about how Ishkar started, a lot of people will immediately think, God, that sounds kind of airy-fairy and very idealistic. And that how on earth did you think that you would ever build a business around that? And I think that criticism is, is fair. Like we started the company when we were very young. So I was just 23. Um, and we were quite idealistic. Um, but the strength of that was, of that idealism was, is that we had a very powerful motivation for seeing the business through. And that motivation has carried us through a lot of very challenging times. If I was to give advice to other social entrepreneurs, I, th I would say that 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 idealism that core idealism needs to be there because it's not easy and and idealism and a vision a strong a big enough motivating vision is key however thinking about a sustainable commercial model is even more important than that and so when we get asked this question that's the thing that i focus more attention on it's does your business model work because you can have the best you know the, the best intentions in the world but if the numbers don't work your idea is going to fail and your impact will be very minimal yeah and and i think that's totally right i think that you're not going to be able to accomplish um the mission that you want to if the business itself can't can't sustain itself and it's certainly a challenge um and also i think you can't perhaps overestimate let's say altruism of your customers right <laughs> because um what i found was that number one whatever product or service you were presenting had to be extraordinary right it had to be beautiful or it had to be well-made or it had you know it, it, it had to be a stand by itself no matter what um and then secondly your pricing had to be reasonable you know it, it couldn't be something way out of bound with with competitive pricing and then the third aspect um could be the story and could be um the origin but if you didn't have an extraordinary product and it wasn't and if it wasn't priced well it you know the, the third part certainly didn't matter absolutely yeah and i i think um Obviously, people hearing this podcast will think you've just spoken about story for the last, uh, <laughs> you know, for the whole <laughs> podcast. So you're, you're, you know, what I'm going to say next, they might discount, but that's definitely how we viewed it at Ishkar. Like the the in many ways, we've stopped describing ourselves as a social enterprise as much as possible. You know, we we don't um, we don't talk loudly about the impact of what we're doing um the, the most important thing is that we're building a desirable brand and we're always treading that line but increasingly we are 
indexing for a desirable brand over an impactful brand, because we believe that a desirable brand will create the most impact over time. Yes, exactly. If you have if you have the reach, then then you're able to to speak to more people. And as as I've said in in other other instances, you know, not everybody wants their product with a side of activism or a side of you know. Sometimes they just want some beautiful thing that sits on their table, and, and you know, and, and they don't they don't necessarily have to think about it much beyond that. But you know, we're hoping that people are more engaged and actually you know, do, it, it does matter and that they are willing to pay a premium for products that have a social element behind it. All right. Well, Edmund, um, this has been a great conversation. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I would love to finish by asking you my two wrap up questions, if you don't mind. Yep. <laughs> so the first thing is, uh, what's something that's made you laugh this week? Um, so my, my wife is, is French and she occasionally makes some excellent excellent mistakes and she uh was ten <laughs> telling me off earlier this week for the amount of dandruffle i had <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> yes that's a good one <laughs> um great and then finally we give a chance for our guests to give a shout out to a brand a service a company um that you preferably use that you think is doing really a particularly great job in the ethical space so there's a company called um home things set up by a friend of mine which sends you tablets um for washing liquid um any kind of um home cleaning um and what it does is it it reduces the amount of of uh, CO2 that's generated from shipping around these full plastic bottles, where actually you could use re- refillable um, uh, bottles with tablets. It's really excellent. The way that they position their brand as well, I, I think they're doing an incredible job at both being extremely impactful, but talking about it in a really fun way. It, they've made cleaning products fun. Okay. <laughs> like, always on their Instagram. I love, I love everything they do. Um, and uh, yeah, highly, highly recommend them. And it's called Home Things. Home Things, yeah. Okay, great. We'll put a link in our show notes. Um, and where can people fo- find you and follow you on, on the socials if they'd like? So our Instagram handle is ishkar.co and our website is www.ishkar.com. Um, Edmund, thank you so much. Really appreciated our conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Corporate Activist. Please stay tuned for future episodes and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Corp Activist. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have questions of your own or need some advice about corporate activism, social impact, or political engagement, please do send them our way and we will respond in future episodes. The Corporate Activist is brought to you by Stance Advocacy Services and is produced by the good people at the Podcast Boutique. I'm your host, Siri Kalsa. Ciao for now.